Welcome to the Good Money Habits podcast, where we marry financial literacy with tips from the experts on how to develop good money habits. Knowing what your options are when it comes to your finances is one thing, how to change your habits and translate the knowledge into action and results is quite another. If this is a new focus for you, we suggest you start with the Foundation Series episodes. Throughout this podcast series, we will meet and interview experts from across the finance field, where they will share their insights and tips for success. We are all about helping people gain financial stability to live a better life. This podcast is brought to you by Lighthouse Capital. It is important to understand that today's episode is of a general nature and doesn't take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs, and may not be appropriate for you. This is Julia Shortinghouse and welcome back to Good Money Habits. So far in this podcast series, we've touched on some of the ways in which you can invest your hard-earned savings. Today, I want to take a deeper dive and explore the world of funds management. What is it exactly? And just what do fund managers actually do? I felt the best way to dig into this topic is to take a look under the bonnet of one of our leading fund managers in Australia. So to help me do that, I'm joined in the studio today by Emma Cook, who's a key account manager at Magellan Asset Management. Welcome, Emma. Thanks for having me, Julia. Uh, My pleasure. And on the line we have Vahari Ross, who is Head of Research at Magellan, a Portfolio Manager and member of the Magellan Investment Committee. Welcome, Vahari. Thanks, Julia. Uh, A small reminder here that, as always, today's discussion is not intended to be a recommendation nor advice. So, Emma, I might kick off with you. Um, You're well known as a passionate advocate for funds management within the industry and especially here in WA. I'd love to hear a bit more about your role and how you came to be doing what you do today. Well, I guess my role uh, for the last almost, oh, it's been 12 years at Magellan is to be a conduit between uh, the Magellan investment team and our clients, so predominantly advisors and brokers and institutions, but also these days more and more um, people who are interested to learn about investing. And I uh, essentially provide them with the insights into how we do what we do, what we're thinking, um, and provide them with as much transparency as I can, because ultimately we're the fiduciaries of their money or your client's money. Precisely. Uh, and so we, we take it very seriously that it's important for people to understand where their money is invested. Um, so that's what I spend most of my time doing. And how did I come about to be here? Um, I guess like most things, a bit of design and a bit of luck. I loved economics at school. And then I went on to study economics at university. And I was inspired by my dad, who was a financial advisor. I loved that he loved his job and he, he didn't want to retire. Um, he loved helping people and educating them about how to prepare themselves uh, for retirement and how to see themselves uh, in a financially sound position throughout their life. Uh, and so I actually wanted to be an advisor, uh, but then accidentally got my first job uh, out of uni in the funds management business uh, and equally was inspired by what funds management can do and how it can contribute to uh, the strategies and all the the, um, the advice that advisors give people, um, helping them build their life savings, I guess. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's so funny to hear you talk about your father because I don't know if I've ever shared this, but 
more just over 15 years ago, I was in a role very similar to yourself and your dad was actually one of my clients um, and he was an exceptional advisor and a wonderful human being. So I'm not surprised at all that he was an inspiration for you. Um, so really your role is, I think of you as being a window into Magellan for us as uh, financial planners, which is wonderful. Now, Vahari, your role with Magellan as head of research and portfolio manager is completely different. Can you share with us a little bit about your role and what was the spark that led you to do what you're doing today? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that is um, it's such a, compl- a complex question in terms of I think a lot of people, you know, don't necessarily think of you know, funds management, you know, when they're finishing high school and where they want to go in their life. But I know for me, it was very much you know utilizing you know both sides of your brain type of type of question. I I really wanted to do something that um, used both qualitative and quantitative aspects in, in my job and I guess I came across um, funds management when I was at university um, becoming an actuary at the time and I found it fascinating because this is a way to understand the world, you know, everything that you come across um, in your own interactions with the world, everything that you read, you know, geopolitics, economics, you know, culture, you know, and underlying businesses and entrepreneurship, all of that is ultimately relevant and, and to what you do and in terms of you know the, the ability to um, understand the company and how it really works and how it ticks and whether it makes a good investment is sort of endlessly fascinating and it's a place where you can learn sort of perpetually. So I guess, you know, I would say if, if nothing else, the spark is still very much there and it was the same spark I would have had, you know, 20 years ago when I first you know, got into the industry. And that continuous learning, I think, is a big part of it. And I like your observation about the left brain and the right brain. I must admit that's what attracts me to financial planning in in a similar way. So I can definitely relate to that. Um, Now, Emma, I might um, kick off with, with you if I can come circle back. So I think it makes sense to start by explaining some of the jargon and the basics before we move into the more complex elements. So, Emma, what actually is funds management? That's a great question. Um, so often when people ask me what I do and I say I work in funds management, they sort of smile with a blank face. Um, uh, but essentially funds management is, is just employing the skill of professional investors to make decisions on your behalf. So most commonly managers uh, manage, obviously, pools of money um, via a certain mandate or they um, have a particular philosophy or an expertise investing in a certain area and as an investor, you can buy units in these managed funds uh, and be exposed to the investment outcomes uh, of the, the manager. So they traverse the investable universe, obviously, from bonds to infrastructure, equities to private equity, property and alternative investments, um, even hedge funds. There's a plethora of funds out there. Um, that's essentially that's yeah. Funds in a management. nutshell, and and I guess um, active funds management's where you're trying to utilise expertise to try and do to try to do better than the market. So it's naturally going to cost more, um, but in theory, at least, if the job's done well, then the cost should cover the relative outperformance, um, which is generally measured by benchmarking back to an index. So we might circle back to that. But to state the obvious, you know, cost is a relevant consideration when investing in a fund. So if you pay more, as I mentioned, you know, you do expect to receive a better outcome. That's not necessarily always the case. You know, so Emma, what is your view on that? And how much does it cost in general to act, to access active funds management? So let's... Um 
split out active and passive funds management first. So active, uh, by suggestion of the name, is uh, the, the active uh, decision um, and judgment calls made by managers on the investments uh, in which mm-hmm. they want to invest. Um, whereas passive investment funds tend to replicate an index. So essentially an, an assortment by, by size or some other criteria of companies listed on an exchange somewhere. Um, so active fund managers, uh, as you mentioned, uh, charge people for those decisions that they make and the judgment calls that they make to try and achieve certain outcomes. And obviously over a long period of time, you'd want to uh, receive value for paying more for something. And so active managers do try to deliver uh, outcomes that are better than market returns or index returns. Um, There's a lot of focus on cost, uh, of course. And um, like everything in this world, it's not just about cost, it's about value for what you pay. That's right. So obviously something that's cheaper might not not necessarily give you the best outcome, even if it gives you an okay outcome. I sometimes use the analogy, you know, we could we can sustain life on uh, black and gold bread and cold sausages, uh, but you know we may not get the sort of the positive outcomes that you might want in terms of health and well-being. So you pay more for things that you perceive to deliver value to you. And it's you determining what does that value mean to you at the end of the day. Exactly. So mm. passive funds uh, tend to cost anywhere between uh, 0.2 or 0.3% and 0.5, I think. Mm. Um, active funds will tend to uh, charge more like 0.6 or 0.7% to 1.5%. Um, there are more expensive funds and there are cheaper funds around. Um but that would be the, the vast majority and people can obviously make those judgment calls on whether they see value in paying more for something. That's right. And in terms of the differences between active and passive management, we hear so much about the rise of exchange traded fund investing or ETFs for short. Perhaps you can just briefly explain what an ETF is. So an ETF is uh, an exchange traded fund. So that is essentially a managed fund that is traded on an exchange um, it's the same sort of investment as a managed fund that doesn't trade on the exchange. It's mm-hmm. a pool of money that's divided into units and people can buy into them. Historically, however, ETFs uh, were all passive uh, investment funds. Um, it perhaps is getting a little bit too detailed, but by um, virtue of the disclosure regime surrounding ETFs, active managers were not able to uh, put their funds on the exchange as an ETF because it would um, it would require them to di- divulge their intellectual yeah, capital. Mm. Exactly. And then they didn't, wouldn't really have a great business model. So um, Magellan actually uh, ch- changed that uh, in 2012 by um, negotiating a new disclosure regime to allow active managers to list their funds on the exchange. So um, Previous to that, ETFs were all passive funds. Uh, Now we have exchange-traded funds that are both passive and active and there are more and more active managers um, offering their funds on the exchange really because it's easier for people to trade uh, in those funds when they are listed. 
That's true and the evolution and the history of how it's evolved is quite interesting and thinking a little bit about that, um, given there has been a lot of debate between passive versus active and the, you know, the S&P indices versus active, which is known as the SPIVA scorecard, is often cited in this regard where they evidence that the majority of active managers underperform the S&P 500 and other global indices where they compare the performance of active equity and fixed income managed funds against their benchmarks over a number of time horizons and they argue that passive investing provides diversification, transparency, market return and cost efficiency. Now, we're not really here to debate who's right and wrong today. And I guess my personal experience has been that it's not necessarily a one size fits all. And what's a suitable approach or combination is going to vary from person to person. Um, And a range of things that need to be taken into consideration, including, you know, what's the amount that's being invested and, and what's the particular preferences for the investor. So I've seen various approaches adopted, um, including using, you know, passive as almost a core in a portfolio to give you a really good low cost diversified mix and then marry that with best best of breed active managers that we think of as satellites to complement the passive assets. So sometimes that's called a hub and spoke approach and that's the kind of thing that financial planners and um, investment professionals can assist people with by providing their skills and expertise to try and determine, you know, what's the best fit and how to build an investment portfolio that's suited. So at the end of the day, you know, investment managers and financial planners are typically trying to identify active managers that they believe are likely to beat their benchmarks and doing that through accessing research from independent research houses like uh, Morningstar and Lonsec are a couple of examples that people might have heard of, Um, but also understanding that different managers will have different skill sets depending upon their investment philosophy. So... That feels like a really nice segue, Bahari, to come back to you to say, sure. you know, can you share with us Magellan's investment philosophy as an example? Absolutely. Um, so for us, you know, Magellan, you know, as active investors, you know, we believe that, you know, successfully investing is about, you know, finding, you know, the world's best companies, you know, and owning those companies over the long term, you know, and essentially enabling those companies to, you know, compound money, you know, for our investors over time. And I would say, look, the important thing here is, you know, we have these, a dual objective uh, when it comes to our investment portfolios. You know, the first is to achieve, you know, strong absolute returns over time because ultimately our end clients, you know, go home with absolute returns, you know, not relative returns. So that's obviously very important. And the second component is downside protection. What that means is when, there's adverse, you know, situations in markets, you know, markets fall, we want to, you know, materially outperform in those scenarios. So, you know, pulling that together, you know, the way we really, you know, look to pull the portfolio together is, you know, the first pillar of that is, you know, high quality companies, you know, businesses that have identifiable, sustainable competitive advantages, you know, it might be a network effect, it might be scale advantage, it might be having a really strong brand, it might be, you know, that it's really hard to switch away um, from that business, you know, from a customer point of view. You know, so it's really about identifying what that competitive advantage is of that company and then can that company exploit that competitive advantage over the years to come, you know, to continue to generate, you know, strong returns on, on their investors' capital. So that is really the first pillar of, 
of what we do at Magellan. And, you know, you know, Buffett sort of famously describes that as businesses that have, you know, an economic moat, you know, a, a natural protection, you know, or a moat around the, the castle that is their business. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, what we're looking is to really be, you know, very considered and detailed focused around the risks to our investment thesis, you know, be they macroeconomic, be they political, um, or be they, you know, a specific factor around a certain industry like regulation, for example. So we're very focused on that as well. And, of course, bringing all that together is, you know, being disciplined on valuation. So, you know, there's this um, sort of concept that we like to use at Magellan, which is, you know, the, the portfolio is like a, you know, it's like a team. And each player in the team, you know, firstly has its place, you know, maybe a defensive player or maybe an offensive player, but each player has to firstly be of high quality and it also needs to earn its place in the portfolio. And you've highlighted a really important differentiator there between active and passive, and that is on the active side, you've also got an eye on that downside protection risk. And I like the way you described, you know, the moat companies having that protection around them. So how do you go about researching a company and how much detail do you go into before you're willing to invest in it? Uh, Well, as you can probably guess, we go into um, a lot of detail. You know, we really we use this phrase of, you know, inch wide but mile deep. You know, each of our analysts across the team, you know, cover, you know, between three and eight companies each. You know, and that's sort of the entirety of, of their of their job. Um, so it really is about being thorough and detailed and, you know, being an expert, you know, in their industries and in, in the companies that they cover. So, you know, the first port of call for us is really determining is this a quality business or not? And, you know, we have an investment committee process that, you know, the senior members of the team participate in. And the the job of the analyst at that point is to do that thorough analysis around those, you know, identifying those advantages, you know, what is the industry structure, what is the company's position within that, and, you know, what are the, you know, what are the business risks, you know, are management, you know, good stewards of, of capital for shareholders, you know, do they make sensible decisions with the with the cash that's generated in that business? You know, and then, you know, the other one is reinvestment potential, which is, you know, it doesn't get as much airtime, but that is really, you know, interesting in the in the sense of that, that comment I made around, you know, the compounding machine that some businesses can be, you know, does the business have the ability to redeploy capital and generate high rates of return and growth off the back of that capital? So we really are looking for the analysts to um, bring a report to that committee that, you know, that covers all of those issues in detail. And that can often, you know, take them, you know, a very extended period of time, you know, to get their heads around. And we really, um, as, you know, gatekeepers in the investment committee, we, we only want to have stocks on the menu that really meet that criteria. And so that's really the first port of call. You know, there's subsequent steps, of course, are, you know, determining what that business is worth, and we do that in a myriad of ways as well. And ultimately, you know, then there may be another company that's, that's better in the end. But we, we keep every single stock that we cover live, you know, and ready to invest in, you know, when the time comes. And the concept of compounding seems to come up over and over again and investing is such an important one. And I actually haven't heard the expression before, inch wide and miles deep in terms of research. I think that's a really good way to look at it and gives that sort of really good visual description of what you're trying to do there. Um, Sure. Perhaps I might ask you a slightly trickier question, if I may. And 
could you give me an example of an investment that didn't go so well and, and what did you learn from that? Absolutely. So, you know, we're quite, um, tra- we like to be quite transparent about, you know, our investment uh, wins and mistakes. Um, there's always a lot of learning that can come um, from a, from an error that has been made historically. And happily, there hasn't been too many of them. But, you know, in a concentrated fund, you know, each individual stock does genuinely matter. You know, typically the Magellan Global Fund has 20 to 25 companies in it. So one I can think of um, as a good example was, was Tesco, which was the largest retailer, uh, grocery retailer in the UK. And the initial error there was really around business quality in the sense that the degree of competitive competitive intensity that was coming at that business from the rise of Aldi, you know, those low-cost, um, cheap and cheerful retailers, but also from Amazon and that shift to online. And interestingly, they are still the dominant um, online grocery retailer in the UK but they were experiencing, you know, a series of, of short-term issues and they, they were losing a lot of money in their markets outside of the UK. And there was sort of a question there that this business, due to its underlying quality, will turn around and, and you know, return to its former glory. Mm. And I would say that, that the, eventually the business did actually turn around and there was an excellent, you know, management team in place that executed on that. But it actually took a long period of time for that to actually come off, for that management team to actually execute um, that turnaround. So the lesson is we'd probably now be less willing to wait around, you know, because ultimately it was taking up space in that portfolio or, you know, taking up, you know, it was a player on the team that potentially was keeping out, you know, another player that was more deserving. You know, eventually that investment thesis did play out, but it's just the time frame, you know, and the opportunity cost ultimately of owning something else in place of that stock. Um, was was the lesson that that I took away from that. And when you do have such a concentrated portfolio as you do with 20 to 25 stocks, that makes sense. Um, That it sounds like it was the right idea, but as you said, it was the time frame. It just took too long to pan out. That's a brilliant example. Thanks for that. Now I'm going to give you the easy one, I guess. What's been one of your best investment decisions? (laughs) Uh, Well, happily, there is a few to choose from there. Hamish has had some very, um, very good calls over the years. Um, one of the best um, contributors to the Dillon Global Fund has been Microsoft, you know, a name that we all know, you know, one of the largest enterprise software companies in the world. Um, you know, it's obviously the leader in office productivity tools, you know, server, you know, PC, operating systems. You know, at the time, you know, there was a lot of concern and worry around, you know, declining use of PCs. Um, you know, and at that time, you know, Microsoft was sort of out of favour for that reason but mm. you know what's emerged and what's you know quite clear really is that the majority of sales for this business is coming from you know business customers ultimately and I think most of us would agree that we are still very much tethered to our Microsoft office tools and if nothing else you know post in the coronavirus world um, the utilization rates of, of their various productivity suite tools is actually only increased um, and the other really interesting pillar of of Microsoft's investment thesis is obviously it is the number two cloud service provider, you know, through its um, Azure platform. It's only number two behind Amazon's web services business. And that is potentially, you know, the digitization of an increasing number of, of things, you know, the digitization of, you know, enterprise um, 
functions, but also the digitization of homes, you know, the digitization of cities, all of this is sort of yet to come in terms of that transition to the cloud that's going to be taking place over time. So there's a very significant sort of opportunity there for that business over time as well. So that that has been a you know, a remarkable, you know, growth story coming through as you are, you know, in Microsoft, you know, Office three six five. But of course they have that resilience in their core business as well that that's sort of really interesting and probably quite underappreciated. But that's still one that is an important part of our portfolio today. It's been an incredible story and it does feel like coronavirus has really accelerated those themes. So that's that's interesting yeah, as well. Mm. Yeah, it's almost become one of the new staples, I would say. Yeah, for sure. That's a great way of looking at it. Okay, so um, in terms of being a fund manager, Fahari, do you feel there's any, I guess, certain character traits that are important that make for a good fund manager? Absolutely. I definitely have an opinion on that one. I think one of the one of the really interesting things, and it's, it's actually a famous Buffett quote, that the most important quality for an investor is actually temperament over mm-hmm. intellect. And, you know, he, he has the famous quote of, you know, someone sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree a long time ago. And I think what that's, what that's telling us really is there's this element of patience, you know, when it comes to funds management. You know, for us, it's about doing the work and being thorough and being considered, but also sometimes you need time for that investment thesis to play out. And I think, you know, in the short term, the market can be incredibly volatile on all of those lovely human traits of fear and greed and, um, you know, excitement. But the true worth of the business comes to the fore over time. And even at Magellan, you know, that absolute return objective we have, it is a long-term objective for precisely that reason. You know, that, that true worth will become apparent over time. And it's really around getting, you know, a good handle on what those long-term structural growth drivers are or what those underlying competitive advantages are and really allowing them, you know, to play out, you know, and part of that original Buffett quote is, you know, being, you know, having a temperament where you, you're not pleased to be with the crowd or against the crowd, you know, let, let's not allow the, you know, the sentiment and the excitement of the market to, or, or of share prices in particular, to influence whether, you, whether this is a, you know, a good investment or not at a point in time. And thinking about temperament, which is a really interesting way of putting it, and I'm in my mind, I'm thinking about emotional intelligence and the cognitive biases that can come into play here. What are some of the risks in investing um, in relation to cognitive biases that people should be aware of? Absolutely, I think that's a really relevant question um, to investing, and particularly to that temperament um, phrase that I brought up. You know, there's, there's a lot of biases. I think that you know that humans are sort of prone to. I would say, and, you know, mental shortcuts that that we make, um, you know, to make our lives easier, ultimately. And that's something you have to be very careful of, I think, as an investor. You know, the classics are things like confirmation bias, you know. Um, we, you know, only, you know, taking on information that confirms your original view. And for us, you know, we spend a lot of time really trying to test out the investment thesis as we come up with and explicitly identifying what are the downside risks to this thesis, you know, and actually plotting it on a graph and, you know, explaining what the risk to our potential uh, shareholder return might be and doing scenarios around that just to, just to sort of not fall in love and not, not be, you know, as prone as possible to that confirmation bias. You know, the other obvious one is, you know, information bias. I sort of referred to that in your last question in that, 
you are being bombarded with, you know, commentators and, you know, sell-side research and, um, you know, share prices in and of itself, you know, potentially giving you information, but is that actually useful information? And I think it's actually been a, a wonderful thing in many ways, being an Australian-based global fund manager, is that a lot of that noise you would get when you're based in a local market is simply not coming our way. You know, and you can, you know, there's a reason that Warren Buffett is based in Omaha in many ways. You know, we we don't, um, we want to do our own work, you know, and come to our own views um, when it comes to, you know, assessing any potential company. And, you know, the list goes on. There's, you know, there's the issue of sunk costs. You know, we've already, I've already invested in this and I've lost money on it. You know, maybe I should hold on. And I think, you know, you've sort of got to assess each, you know, each investment day is a new one and, you know, forget about um, the past and really be focused on looking forward, you know, when it comes to any business. Um, you know, simplifying, you know, oversimplifying, you know, regret, you know, or jumping on investment bandwagons. We've seen a lot of that this year, I would say, you know, with the, you know, sure. the Robin Hoods, et cetera, of the world. And all of those things are, you know, understandable in the sense of a human being. But I think, you know, being conscious of those, um, you know, enables you to correct for them, I would say. And we've tried to really build a process around, um, being, you know, transparent, but also being really objective, hopefully, in the judgments that we're making on it, on each company. It's not to say that that will never happen, but, you know, we're certainly very conscious of bias um, in any investment decision that you might make. And it's incredibly difficult for people to remove those biases and the emotion that goes with it. And it does speak to why it's so incredibly difficult for people to try to do this themselves, which is where, you know, professional funds management like Magellan comes into the fray. Um, Emma, I'm conscious of time and, and Fahari, so I might just um, ask a couple of key questions that I think listeners might want to know. And one is, Emma, in terms of accessing funds management, there's predominantly two ways, um, listed versus unlisted. Can you explain the difference? Uh, it's really a matter of logistics, whether you invest in an unlisted fund or in a listed fund. Essentially, you are investing in uh, usually the same sort of thing in a, in a managed fund. Um, those that are listed off, obviously offer themselves on an exchange. And so sometimes it's quite easy to invest in them because anybody can open up a Comsec or a NAB trading account and then can access the menu that is the Australian Stock Exchange or the ASX, mm -hmm. that menu, and they can select their, their investment funds from there. Funds that are available in the unlisted space, uh, you have to go through a little bit more um, administration in order to buy units in. Uh, there's a bit more form filling out and providing mm -hmm. uh, identification requirements, etc. Um, Unless you're going through a platform scenario. Or you go through a platform mm. scenario and usually that's attributed to uh, help by an advisor because mm -hmm. um, not all platforms are available direct to retail investors, but it helps mm. you um, collect all your investments and, and have them all housed in one place, which makes life um, fairly straight, straightforward to you. So in relation to that listed option, some people listening might have heard about how some listed funds can trade at a discount or a premium to the net asset value or the value of the underlying assets. Can you talk me through why that is? Okay, so those listed funds that tend to, to trade away from what their net asset value is um, are generally closed-ended funds. So you have open-ended funds and closed-ended funds. Mm -hmm. um, Exchange-traded funds or ETFs tend to be open-ended unit mm -hmm. trusts. So on any day, you can apply for as many units as you want or you can redeem as many units as you want and the fund either grows or shrinks in size because it's open-ended. 
with a closed-ended fund, um, there tends to be one moment of capital raising or a, a, a period or a small period of capital raising. Uh, and when you buy units in that raising, uh, because it's part of a closed-ended trust, you forego redemption rights to that unit. Mm-hmm. You can, however, sell that unit on the exchange to a, a you know, a, a secondary party. So mm-hmm. um, the reason that the net asset value and the price at which someone's willing to pay for that unit can deviate is be- purely because Economics 101, it's d- a demand and, and supply, supply constraint. Exactly. Mm. So there's obviously a fixed supply of units in a closed-ended fund, a LIC or a LIT. Um, they're the common acronyms uh, mm-hmm. for listed investment companies and listed investment trusts, which are closed-ended. Uh, if supply exceeds, uh, sorry, if demand exceeds supply, then people will be willing to pay a premium price mm-hmm. to buy that unit mm-hmm. of value. And um, in the uh, sort of at the other end of the stick is if uh, demand is less than the available supply, um, the u- the units will tend to trade at a discount. Um, Yep, that's a great explanation and I think it's a, a really important thing to cover and I know that quite a few managers are out there trying to find ways to resolve that, I guess, and to make it, I guess, a, a cleaner um, entry and exit for clients where they're actually getting the underlying return yeah, of the manager. Value. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess the, the, the economics would have suggested that if something was trading at a discount, more people would be keen mm. to buy it because you think it's so. on sale and mm. you're getting to buy a dollar of value for 90 cents and that would eventually close that discount. There are a lot of vagaries of the uh, mm. listed investment company and trust market that just haven't yet been resolved. But um, the, the industry is working on it, you're right. It's a work in progress for sure. Yeah. So just to finish off then, in terms of resources, uh, I do uh, encourage people to jump onto the ASIC Money Smart website as a good starting point. Are there any other resources or things you'd recommend in terms of if people want to learn a bit more where they should head to? You need to read and read a lot. Uh, I think finding investment managers that you that resonate with you, um, understanding them and following um, what they think gives you uh, insights. I think from this um, short conversation we've had today, though, it's clearly demonstrated how much there is to know and to understand about the investing universe. And so much we assume. And so much that we, well, we assume that people might understand, but they perhaps won't. Mm. And you know, the goal in life is just to avoid any mistakes or disasters in what you do with your financial existence. So that's why we are big advocates for financial advice because uh, employing a professional fund manager to make investment decisions, employing a financial a professional advisor to, to help you with the strategy and the, um, you know, the, the appropriate decision for you, because as you said previously, it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of industry. Mm. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, advisors are your fountain of... Uh, investment insight. Precisely. Unbiased. That's right. And uh, I noticed in my inbox inbox just quickly this week, Magellan have launched launched a podcast. We have, yes. So we, um, following in your footsteps, uh, are trying to offer um, as much insight as we can into how we think and how we manage, but also offer investors insights that can help them in their decision making um, sort of across the board. So the Magellan website, uh, magellangroup.com.au has a lot of um, resources to help people understand even what an ETF is, um, how we think about investing and, um, you know, the global uh, investment uh, universe that we are, that we exist in. And the podcast will be a monthly um, episode that again, hopefully provides some interesting and insightful 
uh, um, information. Content. Yeah, terrific. Yeah. Well, I'll be listening in, that's for sure. But Bahari and Emma, thank, thanks to you both for sharing your valuable time today, your insi- insights, your expertise. It has just been fantastic to chat to you both today about what funds management is, the options people have, as well as some of the issues that people need to consider in this space. So thanks again for joining Good Money Habits. In the next episode, we'll continue the investing theme and we'll start to look at the fundamentals of portfolio construction. In the meantime, take care, everyone, and thanks for listening in. That was another episode of Good Money Habits brought to you by Lighthouse Capital. A reminder that this episode was general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs and therefore may not be appropriate for you. It is recommended that you seek professional advice before making any significant financial decisions. If you want to find out more, this podcast series is available on Apple Podcasts or head to www.lighthousecapital.com.au.